You may be familiar with the man named Jim Elliot. If not, then what you need to know is that Jim Elliot was a missionary in the 1950s. He had a passion for the unreached who had never heard the gospel to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. This is why Jim and a team of other men wanted to take the gospel to the Akus people. They had learned that the Akus people were not friendly and hostile to outsiders and would kill anyone who would get close to their tribe. There had been an oil company nearby the Akus people who had to shut down because at one point the Akus people killed all the workers and nobody really wants to work near a tribe that's going to kill them. Jim and his team did not take the hostility of the tribe to outsiders lightly. So what they first set out to do was win the tribe's favor to show them that Jim and his team were not hostile. They weren't their enemies. So one of the things that they would do is they would take a loud speaker and they would say words in the Akus language that were friendly. What they also did is they would fly over the Akus tribe, lowering a bucket with goods like food and other things to gain their favor. And at one point, the tribe had given them a gift back. And because of this, Jim and his team thought it was time. It was time to go and meet this tribe. So they found a, a section of the beach to camp far enough away to not disturb the tribe, but close enough where the tribe could come if they wanted to. And a couple of days went by, nobody came, and then suddenly a few people showed up. These people had dinner and spent the night and day with Jim and his team and then left. A few more days had gone by and they did not see them again until about day six. They saw a few people come out of the trees and Jim and one of his teammates stood up and started shouting, Over here! And when they did that, they started hearing screams and were chased down and killed. Jim Elliott was 29 years old. He left a wife and a young daughter behind. There is no doubt that the tragic news of Jim's death caused his wife to grieve and mourn the reality that the man that she loved and had a child with went to be with his Savior. And this is the reality of our passage today too. Grief. Mourning. Unexpected, unexplainable loss. But I also hope 
that. What I can show is that there is hope in this passage. You see, I'm not going to hide the fact that this is a hard passage to wrestle with. This is a tragic passage where we may come away with unsatisfied answers to our questions. There is no hiding the reality of a king using his power for evil and vile acts instead of protecting and acting justly. What makes this even harder is knowing that this all took place to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah said. But if I can encourage us right away, it's with this, that our mourning does turn into joy. And that there is an expiration date to suffering. I'd like us to take a look at two things today in this passage. Two things. That is people and providence. People and providence. First, let's take a look at the people In this passage, there are two main people to look at. Who are they? Well, the two main people in this passage is Herod and Jesus. If we were to take a look at what is above and below this passage, we will see why this is. Above this passage, we see that Joseph is being told to take his child, or the mother's child, and the mother to flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill him. If we look below the passage, we see that Joseph is told they all can return back to the region that they lived in because Herod has died. So, the two main people in this passage are Herod and Jesus. Let's look at the first, Herod. Who was Herod? Herod was a cruel, vile, nasty leader. Leaders are supposed to uphold the law, be just and fair, and protect his people. But this was not Herod at all. Herod cared about three things, and three things only. I wonder if you've heard this before. Me, myself, and I. That's all Herod cared about. Believe it or not, Sending to have everyone to and under killed in Bethlehem and around Bethlehem is just the tip of the iceberg for Herod. So what's below the water? Well, if you look further under the water at the the rest of the 90%, we can see some things like this. Herod, at one point, was unsatisfied with his wife, so he had her killed. Herod did not... Enjoy the company of a few of his sons, so he had them killed. A a man, I'm going to butcher his name, I practiced this a ton, but I'm still going to butcher it. Saturnila jokingly said to Augustus during this time, I would rather have been Herod's hog than his son. Meaning this. This guy jokingly said it would be safer to be a hog in Herod's kingdom rather than his own son. Herod also made a decree saying that when he died, he wanted his guards to gather the religious elites and have them executed. 
Why? Because then Herod knew that there would be mourning on the day of his death. Why is this? Herod was a man who needed control. He needed to eliminate anyone that posed as a competitor to his greatness. Think about the greatest competitor in the world. Some of you may be thinking of your spouse right now, and that's okay. But multiply that now by a thousand and put that person in charge over a region. When the wise men didn't come back, he thought they had tricked him, and he became furious, so furious with red-hot anger that his only conclusion to deal with his anger led him to send people to Bethlehem and the region to kill all who were two years old and under, according to the time that the wise men had given him. So how do we answer the problem of the evil acts of Herod that we see in this passage? Can we make an excuse for God? How about this? How, how, how do we answer the problem of evil acts for any ruler? that uses their reign for evil and not good. First, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God places rulers. Second, Proverbs tells us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. Now, you may be led to think that what I am saying is that God is the author of evil. That's not the case. That's not what I am communicating at all. James clearly tells us, let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. John tells his readers in 1 John, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So how do we answer this question? Well, I think the best way we can look at Job. Good call, Bill. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. The answer to our question? Because God allowed Herod to. God allowed Herod to only up to a point. Think about it like this. God has Herod on a leash and will only let him go as far as God wants to let the leash out. Now, I understand that's a hard pill to swallow and maybe one of the unsatisfied answers. Look, in college, 
when an old high school AU basketball teammate of mine reached out and asked me about the problem of evil and suffering. This bothered me. Why? This is a hard question to give a satisfying answer to and a hard question to come to grips for yourself. Passages like this still bother me today. But I like to think that I have grown in the area of trusting God more than what I can actually understand. Other doctrines have helped me come to this realization that I don't need to understand everything that goes on. But the reality of evil rulers still lives on presently, doesn't it? Rulers are supposed to rule fairly. They're supposed to be rulers who rule justly. They're to protect and uphold the law. But the hunger for control and the thirst for power persists. I think we have seen this hunger grow the past few years here in the States. Growing demand for control and power between the two primary political parties that are to lead us. The hunger for control ruins the soul and it doesn't matter which party or person you support. Both are capable of the evil we see in Herod. Both are capable to be overcome by their competitive spirit to want to control. Both are capable of sacrificing by leading justly and ruling fairly for the sake of power and control. Friends, you will not find your hope on this side of heaven following a political party. And let me say one more thing, and then we'll move on to the second person. If you're a husband or a father, you are not to use your God-given authority in your home to abuse your kids. You're not to use your God-given authority to abuse your wife. Physical abuse or verbal abuse. You are called to lead with sacrificial love and compassion, leading justly and fairly in your home. Not using your power for your selfish gain and bending your family to your will. You are called to love your wife sacrificially and not provoke your children to anger. The second person this passage is about is Jesus. I'll even go so far as to say the main person in this passage is Jesus. Imagine the pastor saying that. I know, I know that's a very typical Sunday school answer. Jesus. I wonder, have you heard of the story of the, the, the little boy who walks into his Sunday school room 
and every question that the teacher has, he just says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And she asks him, why are you saying Jesus so much? And, and his response is, well, then at least I'll get one of the answers, right? But how can a passage be about Jesus when Jesus is not even present in this passage? Well, like I mentioned earlier, Herod being furious about being tricked sent people to Bethlehem in hopes to kill Jesus. Jesus was the threat of Herod's power and control because of what the wise men had said of Jesus, that he was the king of the Jews. And because of that, Jesus posed a threat to Herod's kingdom. He posed a threat to Herod's greatness. Jesus was a competitor to Herod, and so Herod wanted to destroy. He wanted to eliminate Jesus. But what Herod did not realize is that he was not competing with just a mere child. Herod himself was competing with God. Jesus, as we have seen, is, is not just a, a mere ordinary child. He is the Son of God. Matthew has shown us how Jesus is this long-awaited offspring of David and Abraham. Mary conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Magi, men of the East, came and fell down and worshipped the King of the Jews, giving Him treasures, gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when the wise men left, Joseph had a dream being told to take the child and the child's mother and flee to Egypt. This is anything but an ordinary child. And it's because Jesus is anything but ordinary. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and right from the beginning of His life, we see the hostility that He would face. But the same hostility Jesus faced at the beginning of His life, believe it or not, is the same hostility that Jesus still faces today. Right now, at this very moment, how, how is this still the same hostility Jesus faces today? Because we, by nature, are still competitors. We still long for that control. And because we long for that control, we do not come to Jesus willingly to worship Him. The same temptation that Adam and Eve were faced with in the garden is still the same temptation we face today. To compete with God for control. I wonder if you're here today competing with Jesus to let go, unwilling to let go of the controlling nature in your life. The control that says, I don't want to submit myself to Jesus, but my own ways. The control that says, I don't want to submit to how God has called me to trust Him in His Word. This hostility and control is because of our sinful nature to be little gods and goddesses. To worship the creature or the creation instead of the Creator. 
So I want to speak to two people right now. First, if you're not a Christian, then please hear me say this. That the loving nature and mercy of God is to rescue the very people that were hostile toward Him. The hostility towards Jesus, this, this hostility, this hostility toward Jesus led to His death on the cross, but His death was not an ordinary death. His death on the cross was a sacrifice for the sins of the very people who are hostile toward Him. Christ died for you while yet you were still a sinner. Christ died for you while yet you were still hostile and an enemy toward Him. He took your guilt and bore your wrath so that by you trusting in His saving work on the cross, you could receive His right standing with God. If you're unfamiliar with this, I'd love to speak with you after service. I'll be by the door. But the second person that I want to talk to is if you claim to be a Christian and you're here this morning, how has your need to control in your life led you away from worshiping Jesus? How has it led you away from trusting God and His Word? Has your need for controlling your kids led you to snap and get angry with them over little things? Please remember that God, your Father, is slow to anger with you. How about the stress of your marriage? Has that led you to try to control your husband? Control your wife? Please remember that Christ sacrificially loved His spouse, the church. Maybe your bank account is running empty and the only way forward is by taking matters into your own hands and fudging the numbers on taxes this year. Brothers and sisters, you have a God who cares for you. Trust the Lord and obey His Word. You will not go wrong doing that. He has a plan that He is working out whether you see it or not. So these are the two people of this passage, Herod and Jesus. So now let's move on to providence. I wonder if you're familiar with the word providence. Let me give a brief definition of this word providence. One way that we can define providence is to say that God is constantly involved with what is taking place in this world for His purpose. Maybe a simpler definition, this means that nothing takes God by surprise because He is involved in it. Let me give a quick illustration. This, this means that when I went to college to play basketball, it was a part of God's plan for me to become a pastor. 
I went to college expecting to play basketball and eventually coach, and he used that to lead me to become a pastor. You could say the same thing about where you currently live right now. You could say the same thing about where you work right now. You could say the same thing about who your spouse is right now. So how is providence closely linked to our passage? Well, because everything that took place in our passage was to fulfill what the prophet Jeremiah had said. A fulfilled prophecy is God's providence clearly at work. And in this particular passage, what we see is tragic. It's heartbreaking. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Ramah was a few miles away from Bethlehem. And when Jeremiah prophesied this, Israel was being stripped away and led into exile. So imagine with me for a moment that you are with your family. Your brothers, sisters, your mom, dad, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, and you are hearing the wailing and the crying of seeing your young family members being torn from your side, knowing that their destiny will be captives and slaves, not knowing if you will ever see them again. When Jeremiah was prophesying, that was the scene. But what about Rachel here? What does Rachel have to do with anything? Who is Rachel? Well, one important thing to know is that just as Israel looked at Abraham as the father of the nation, they looked at Rachel as the mother of the nation. Who's Rachel? Rachel was the wife of Jacob. Jacob all the way back in Genesis. She had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Rachel wept over her sons. And in fact, when Rachel gave birth to her son Benjamin, it was not an easy labor, and she didn't survive it. So this prophecy that Jeremiah said, and now Matthew is using, of this imagery of Rachel weeping for her children, her sons, is to describe the sorrow that is taking place right now. The pain, the hurt, the confusion and agony of these poor women's sons being brutally murdered by Herod. This is the tragic reality of this passage. And I said it above, so I'll say it again, that the prophecy taking place of Herod killing innocent children this describes the sorrow of the mothers. Why, why would not the 
the mother weep for their children over this scene, over this tragic reality that took place. And, and here's what we may be tempted to do with this passage. This is what we may be tempted to do, is we may be tempted to make an excuse for God here. We may be tempted to hide and bury this passage as far as possible, never to bring this up in front of our unbelieving family members or friends. But we can't do that. And we shouldn't do that because the providence of God is at work here even through tragedy. Believe it or not, God works through tragedy. How is the providence of God work at work here? Well, let's look at a few, two specifically, two specific ways. God's providence led Jesus to Egypt to come out as the better Moses, to lead his people to the promised land. But this was not some type of physical promised land that they could experience right away. So what was it? Well, let me put it like this. We may be tempted to think that Mary was spared from mourning and Jesus was spared from death, but that is not the case. Thirty years later, Mary would be in the crowd weeping and wailing, watching as her son is being crucified and stabbed to death. Which through that death and through His resurrection would lead sinners to reconciliation and one day the promised land where there would be no weeping or mourning. Where every tear would be wiped away. The second providence, I can't say it any better than Matthew Henry, he says it like this. Some observe another de design of providence in the murder of the infants. By all the prophecies of the Old Testament, it appears that Bethlehem was the place and the time of the Messiah's nativity. Now, all the children of Bethlehem, born at this time, being murdered, and Jesus only escaping, None but Jesus could pretend to be the Messiah. Herod now thought he had baffled all the Old Testament prophecies. He had defeated the indications of the star and the devotion of the wise men by ridding the country of this new king. Having burnt the hive, he concludes he had killed the master bee. But... It, but God in heaven laughs at him and has him in derision. Whatever crafty, cruel devices are in men's hearts, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. The providence of God is on the Christian's side. How is the providence of God on the Christian's side? Well, we can take great comfort from Rachel's own son, Joseph as he is sold into slavery by his own brothers, then innocently thrown into prison after 20 years, comes face to face with his brothers and declares to them, as for you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Or we could look to Paul as he is writing to the Romans and take comfort from what he tells them. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to His purpose. So, so here's what I just like to, to clear up and, and say. I'm not pretending to know why or even how God uses the suffering and the tragic events in this life. That's not what I'm trying to do. Truly, in this case of suffering and in all cases of suffering, hindsight is 2020. We can look back at this passage and see the providence of God at work here. But what about the weeping mothers? And the angry fathers, could they see it? Well, of course not. They did not realize that there would be a resurrection to come. And so if you are here this morning and you were to ask me, why is this suffering taking place in my life? Why has this suffering happened to me? I will not come up with a good enough answer for you. We can try to be clever with cute Christian phrases. Sometimes those are actually the most hurtful phrases. But here's what I have come to believe about suffering recently. I don't think we're supposed to know in the moment why something happens. But instead, I think we're supposed to look back in 20, 30, 40 years and simply come to the conclusion God has been faithful. I don't know why people die sooner than we think they should, and it's tragic when they do. So if you are suffering, God is not going to waste it. On the night of Jim Elliot's death, his wife was waiting to hear how the day went. Each night, her and another woman waited by a radio to hear how the day went and the progress that Jim and the team was able to make. When they didn't hear anything that night, immediately she knew that something was wrong and got a hold of the appropriate people to go and look for them. They found the bodies of the dead missionaries and the 29-year-old Jim Elliott was buried. But a few years later, Elizabeth Elliott, her daughter, and another team went to the tribe that had murdered her husband they were able to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that is to come. And the majority of the tribe believed. As we leave here today, I'd like to encourage you with just this last thing. You may not know why you're suffering or going through what you're going through, but God is not surprised. And he will not waste it. You may be suffering far beyond you ever thought 
you could. But God is using it. You may think suffering, your suffering, will never end. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection, if you have faith in Christ's work, your mourning will turn into joy. All of your tears will be wiped away. And your suffering will have an expiration date. Let's pray.